Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Okay. Hi, everyone. This is Teresa, and I'm here right now. We have Ashley and Wanda Mahoney on the call. Um, and Wanda is your first call, so welcome. And the plan for today is to talk about um, AOTA conference, which was more than a month ago. So we are all struggling to remember what exactly we went to and what we um, saw, but we will try to do so. And hopefully as we talk about it, we will think of more good things. Um, And so it was the 100th anniversary of OT at AOTA conference this year, which was pretty exciting to be at. There were a lot of historical sessions um, to go to. Um, and then um, I think myself and Ashley and Wanda and then whoever else might um, join um, will share about any fun tidbits or interesting information they um, experience while at conference. So um, Ashley or Wanda, do either of you want to go first? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. well, I, I can share what my, my favorite session I went to real quick. Um, so I went to a really great session from, or was that was run by the New York City um, Department of Education and the OTs um, that are in New York City public schools, and they did a whole session on student goal monitoring, which was uh, I thought amazing the things that they were doing. They had nice videos to show us how this works, and so um, this is something they're doing district wide, if you can believe it, in New York City public schools, which is a huge district, and um, so. First of all, students are becoming more aware of what their goals are and are helping to set those goals. And then um, they are using, um, well, they are creating um, uh, data tracking sheets or goal tracking monitoring sheets that are personalized to the child to help the child keep track of their goal. So one of the tools they mentioned using was the DLTK Kids website, which is a free website um, some of you might be familiar with. And so you can, I guess they have a a feature on that website called Shore Charts, but you can customize the chart however you want, pick a picture for the child, the color, and then put in the name of the chart and the labels for the X and Y axis of the chart um, for, um, for the students to use to track their own goals. Um, or you can just well, use an Excel spreadsheet. Um, so go ahead, Ashley. Oh, I was, was going to ask, what was that website again that you said? Um, DLTK Kids. D-L-T-K. Okay. Um, yeah, D as in dog, L as in Lucy, T as in Tom, K as in kids, and then kids after that. Um, I usually just type in DLTK Kids into Google, and then I can find the website. Um, and they have a lot of crafts and things on there, but if you search for the chore chart feature on that website, it comes up. Um, and then um, what they have the kids do, um, they showed an example of where the kids were coming to an OT room, but they said that you could easily do it in a classroom as well. 
is the students all have their data tracking card um, or goal tracking card up on the goal board within the classroom. So when it's time to, or in the room, so when it's time for the OT to come in, it's OT time, the kids get super excited and they go grab their goal from the goal wall and bring it over and then they're using that goal um, sheet or, or card to track their performance during the session. So I thought that was a pretty cool way to um, start students early. They showed it with young students all the way up through transition age students. Um, but for them to get started and to, like, being involved in their own goal setting and then tracking their goals and viewing their progress. And um, they said sometimes the OT will forget about the goal card and then they've had kids who say like, oh, wait, wait, I have to get my goal card. You need to work on my goals. Um, That's so, awesome. So it was a really nice session to see, and I thought it was really amazing that there was something they were doing district-wide. Um, so if, you know, if New York City Public Schools can pull something like that off, then I think if some of our smaller districts in Chicagoland, it might be possible too. Um, so that was my favorite session that I went to. I left pretty energized after that one with good ideas. And even um, in, it's something that could be adapted to for um, even like parents uh, having a, a special tracking sheet for parents in EI if you wanted, or in the clinic I'm working in, I started doing it with some of the kids um, too. And then um, helping the kids come up with a way. I think it's really important to have the kids come up with a way to help, like how are we going to measure your goal or what are we going to record, and then creating a goal that's going to um, be able to be tracked by the student. But with some tweaks, it, it can be done. But it was it was pretty cool, and it, I thought it was a nice thing to do as OTs. And was it the OTs that, that did that in the New York School District? Yep, it was something the OT department in New York City Public Schools. Um, they have a large district just like Chicago Public Schools. It was something that the OT department, that was their initiative for the past school year, was to okay. um, do trainings and um, Tra continuing ed and trainings and, and mentoring on how to have students tracking um, their own progress. So it was a, a year-long initiative by um, New York City Public Schools. Oh, wow. Yep. Well, now I remember what session oh, that was, like part of the title, so we could like maybe search to see if there might be handouts that are still available. From that I know I do not know off the top of my head. I could look it up and post it when I post the call. We post the call notes or the summary of the call. I know it was on. Um, it was on the very first day of conference. I'm pretty sure on Thursday, um, and I think it was something like student self monitoring um, in a, in an education setting or something like that. But I, I'll look up the exact name and I'll, I'll try to send it out. Great. Hi, Anne. Sorry I'm late. Oh, hi. Hi, Anne. Is that, was that Anne? Yep. Okay, great. So, Anne, I was just sharing um, about the session I went to on student self-monitoring, and then we've got Ashley and Wanda here. So, um, oh, great. We're all struggling to remember because AOT was so long ago, but... Um, Anytime you're interested in sharing something that you um, remembered from conference and thought was interesting, you are welcome to. All so right. I shared my favorite, so I'll pass the baton off to somebody else for a minute. <laughs> well, one of the ones that I went to that was really interesting, and I'm 
I didn't know I needed to study up before coming to this. I thought I was mostly going to be listening. <laughs> um, was the um, session about social emotional learning across the lifespan. And uh, one of the things that, um, that I remember explicitly that they referred to that I didn't realize existed was um, I think it's part of the, um, it's either part of the childhood occupation school uh, toolkit or it's part of like the school mental health toolkit on the AOTA website that's specifically about um, like social emotional learning with kids. And so just even knowing that that resource is available um, I think was, was helpful and uh, just talking about this is the part where it, if I looked at my notes it would have helped a lot more <laughs> um, <laughs> talking about like how to foster um, like how like social emotional learning is one of those like um, like kind of key terms or hot topics that you hear a lot about but that sometimes we're kind of like okay that sounds like something we probably do but I'm not exactly sure <laughs> And so talking about like what it is, and it's like, of course, of course, that's something that we do. And the um, CASEL, C-A-S-E-L website that has a lot of stuff about just like what is social emotional learning. Um, and that one I knew about, but is I think another really helpful resource. Um, but they had some really nice um, case examples of, of really across the lifespan, starting in early childhood, had one from elementary. I feel like had one from transition age and definitely for sure had one from um, adults and um, kind of considering how do we foster um, social emotional learning and, and like kids' self-awareness of their emotions and how they're expressing emotions and how they're expressing themselves. Um, and uh, I know that that handout like was was a pretty extensive handout. So even if I don't remember, I can like refer people to go <laughs> to go yeah, the is. handout. <laughs> and yeah, it was, it's, the it is, title was something about like social emotional learning across the lifespan. So that would be my my like takeaway thing from the conference that I can remember off the top of my head. Yeah. That is such an important topic, and you're right, the AOT does have a handout about social emotional learning, and it is, it is part of the, the school mental health toolkit, so that's where you can access that. And, I, and there's, you know, they have a variety of handouts on like bullying and inclusion and a, a whole uh, variety of topics as part of that school mental health toolkit. And what's nice, I think, is helpful, even though I'm, I don't work in the schools, but it's nice to kind of see even for early childhood or EI or even in the outpatient and community settings that I work in, they give pretty, you know, some really nice specific strategies for, uh, like at a universal level, whole school approach, targeted strategies, and intensive strategies, and they give like, you know, like I said, pretty specific ideas, which is really nice to kind of just look at. As you said, if if you're kind of thinking about like social and emotional learning, like, you know, I think we have as OT sort of lost that in some way, even though that's where we started <laughs> in our profession. And uh, we do need to, to be talking about how that impacts participation and occupation and make sure that we are uh, making sure that OT has a role at that table in, in social and emotional learning across, you know, and this is important in early intervention as well. Um, and these, you know, that handout I think is really nice for giving us ideas of how we could do that. 
Mm-hmm. So that you um, that you brought that up and that there was a nice uh, session about that at AOT. Yeah. Well, and and I sometimes think- I feel like sometimes that there's a situation to where um, we're doing it and we just don't know the terminology potentially that other professionals are doing are using. And then there's the case of where we're like, oh, we should be doing this. <laughs> and, um, but we don't necessarily like recognize like, oh, yeah, we need to branch out a little bit and address this stuff as well. So kind of from sure. both standpoints. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I, I interrupted somebody. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I think one of the uh, one of the good things about being in Illinois is the fact that we have the social emotional learning standards. You know, I think we take that for granted because not all states have that. And uh, so, you know, we we fall short in many other categories, but that's one thing we can be proud of here in Illinois. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> It would be kind of interesting to think about uh, kind of, Teresa, what you were talking about with the child self-monitoring goals and then, you know, with social and emotional learning in the school system, like how a child might use some of those charts and, you know, self-monitor towards self-management and self-awareness and self-regulation and all some of those components of social and emotional learning and then like how you might link that to a standard. Uh, well, and it's so interesting, like, even the example that she gave of, like, the child initiating, like, wait, I need to go get my goal chart, like, really is actually addressing their <laughs> their right. emotional learning needs. Sure. It's like they may be tracking something completely differently, but the fact that they're recognizing, like, wait, this is something that, this is a tool that I need to be using to keep track of my performance. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and they definitely they gave examples of things like um, improving handwriting and tying shoes, but they also gave some examples of things that were social emotional related. Um, trying to think of a good one right now, um, it's escaping me. I'm sorry, but I think Ashley, or I think that's a really uh, a really great way to to address some of those, um, you know, social emotional skills is by having students self monitor to keep. Um, to be more in tune with with how they're feeling and how they're reacting and, and to lead towards self-management. So I think that they do kind of go together and, and could work together to, to be a very cool intervention that addresses those much-needed skills. So one of the questions that I went to that kind of fits in with this conversation is um, it was a big panel all about collaboration in the school. And all of the different panelists, um, some of the speakers were Sandy Shepkin, Sue Basic, Glennon Graho, um, and a couple of other people that I did not recognize. Uh, but they all shared examples of how they used collaboration in the school setting to support occupational um, performance participation. Uh, you know, so Sue reviewed the, the cafeteria best resources that she created. Uh, and can you guys hear me okay? I'm sorry, I'm driving. You're breaking up, but you're you're hearable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, so, let me try this. All right, is that better? That does yeah, sound I think it is. Okay. Um, so, Lennon was talking all about his new model to support screening as an occupation. And um, 
Have you have you guys um, familiarized yourself with his work yet? A little no. bit. So I'd love to hear your thoughts because, um, and I don't know if it's just my personal experience. This is a school working with reading specialist, um, and the mom was is a reading specialist. And all of the things that he talked about in terms of how as OTs we can support reading in the schools are things that my mom and other reading specialists did in my district where I work. Um, I don't know if we were just in a really good district where the reading specialists did a lot more than just teach reading, like decoding skills and things like that, Um, or if, you know, if OT as a profession really tries to get into reading that we're just going to pinhole ourselves into something similar like handwriting. Uh-huh. Anyone have any thoughts? Well, and it's interesting because I was just on a, um, a call um with the AOTA transition uh, community of practice. And we were talking about how um, it's an asset for OTs to look at things that nobody else is doing right now in the schools and then see how we can fill that that void. So for an example, in transition, very few people are thinking and considering about leisure skills for these young adults and after they graduate, you know. But, you know, if you don't have, in the state of Illinois, if you don't have funding for a job coach and you don't have funding for a developmental training program, you know, it could be life-changing to have um, a meaningful leisure activity to do either at home or in the community instead of just sitting at home and then, um, you know, like being stir-crazy and having nothing meaningful to do. So it can be really powerful, and that's an area where OTs can demonstrate, like, we can meet this need for the school system here by doing this. That doesn't mean that we can't add value for things other people are doing, but um, I think we're going to get ahead more if we really identify what the needs are and then try to meet those needs than duplicating services. So I don't know. I haven't worked enough in more um, general education settings to know. Um, you know, most of the kids I work with are um, at a very basic reading level or have very significant disabilities. So I, it might be different in a, um, a different setting. But it's interesting to think about that and what you just said. Like, are we duplicating services or then how would we be different from a reading specialist Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that OTs, just because we could at, like we could do that doesn't necessarily mean, like, should that be what we're focusing on or is there another place where we could be maximizing our value? Absolutely. Yeah. And AOTA just started a new uh, community of practice regarding early literacy, which sort of relates, you know, to, I think it's more, I, I believe it's more focused on, like, the early childhood and the, the early literacy kind of pieces, and so I know, like, there's some work around that, um, but we also hear from speech and language pathologists who address literacy, you know, which is a little different than reading, but still some of the same foundational skills. And so, you know, I think, I think it does uh, bring up some good questions about scope of practice and and how we have to make sure that we are linking it back to an occupation for the child. But I think, like, especially for, like, the early literacy stuff, I mean, I remember going to continuing ed things about, like, fostering um, literacy and participation in, like, story time and stuff, like, 
years yeah. ago with like early kid, like early childhood. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I already did stuff with like, you know, fostering, you know, parents and, and kids like participating in story time together and like the parents reading the books to the kids and stuff like that as like an, as an important like early childhood occupation. But then having gone to these trainings, I'm like, wow, how much more I would do of that now. And now that I am doing EI, I mean, that's like one of the key occupations that I talk to parents about, you know, in terms of like, is this part of their daily routine? And if not, how can we make it part of their daily routine so that it's not this like, like add on therapy activity, but it really is like part of their routine. And one of the kids that I'm working with right now, it's like really figuring out like, okay, well, when is a time in your day where this can feel like just part of like what you're doing and not an add on thing. And so, you know, we're trying, you know, we've talked about like, especially bedtime and bedtime routines. And is there a way to incorporate story time into into that so that it doesn't feel like this huge extra thing like the kid loves baths like well have you tried bath books like you know is that like maybe a time to to integrate this a little bit more so the I feel like that there's a difference between like I feel like it's a lot easier to talk about like participation in like early literacy and early childhood things um I I get some hesitation with the like reading stuff in schools of like, I even think about like when I talk about task analysis and I'm like, yes, reading is an occupation, but in terms of like doing a task analysis of reading, I was like, you know what, that's where I ask the teachers for, <laughs> for help about like how to break this down more and kind of defer to their expertise in that. Um, so I feel like that those are almost like two, like obviously related, but two different things. Well, and everything that Lennon was presenting on was all about um, how to engage children in reading more often, how to work with them to figure out how to incorporate it into their daily routines and things like that. So it really wasn't at the reading strategy level. It was more about engaging in that occupation um, and mm -hmm. helping problem solve ways to um, make it, you know, more of an everyday routine um, or habit. Um, but, you know, talking about creative ways to incorporate reading, you know, by going to the restaurants and reading the menus and, um, you know, reading recipes when you're cooking and things like that to make it more fun and uh, engaging for the children. Um, but those are all things that my mom did as a reading specialist, you know. I don't see where why OT needs to be the one making those recommendations in the school. Mm -hmm. And do most schools in Illinois have reading specialists or do they all? I'm just wondering like with funding and like what, how does that work or is that still a, a fairly prominent? You know what, good question and I don't know. I know um, in my district, which is pretty well funded, <laughs> um, all of the schools had at least one, if not more than one, reading specialist. Okay. Yeah. I just wondered if that was maybe how it came up. Like, Teresa, what you were saying that, like, if there was an identified need, then maybe OT was trying to fill it. But uh, but in other areas, then, if yeah, if another professional has already established some of the strategies, then we would have to be thoughtful about what our role would be as an OT, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So, but yeah, other than that, the panel was, um, it was a good reminder of the importance of collaboration. It wasn't so new information for me. Um, it was a lot of good reminders and some good examples of uh, what you can do with collaboration and how you can uh, achieve better outcomes. It looks like someone just going to the call. Did somebody just come on the call? Yes, Teresa, it's Aurora Tabar. Hi. Oh, hi, Aurora. How are you? <laughs> hi, I'm fine, thanks. Glad to be here. Great. Yeah, thanks for joining. Mm-hmm. Well, we were just talking about some of the things that we learned at AOTA. Um, I, um, I mentioned I went to a great session on student um, self-monitoring of OT goals, so that might be something for you to maybe listen back and catch up on. Um, okay. Or, um, I can share some resources about that with you. So, um, I know there might be some students that might be useful for, for you to, to use with. But um, And then other people were just sharing. Um, Amos was talking about her experience at one session on collaboration so in the school. Okay. Great. Thanks. I'm trying to, this is Ashley, I'm trying to remember some of the sessions that I went to, but um, I did, I presented a couple of sessions uh, related to early intervention, um, and, and one of them was the conversations that matter, and I know um, we, talking to several people at conference, those sessions seem to be really popular this, this year. Um, I know, Teresa, you facilitated one that was pretty packed. Ours was really packed with people being turned away, you know, with a, at a lot of those sessions. Um, and the topic that we talked about, our just sort of general topic, was inclusion in early childhood. Um, hmm. We got a lot of variation of, you know, with the discussion. So those sessions were not, like, presenting any material. It was really just kind of either facilitated discussion or small groups or, or it kind of depended how the facilitators ran the session. Uh, but we heard, you know, I think it's just, a, I don't really have anything uh, major to share except I think that's a big topic that um, is being talked about and what is OT's role in this kind of gets so what we were just discussing around, you know, everybody in a school setting, early childhood, EI, has a role in promoting inclusion of I think one of the challenges and something that we kind of, I'm hearing a lot of, like, static. Is anybody else hearing that? Yeah. I do. Yeah, I hear it. Okay. Um, oh, there, maybe it's. It's gone now. Okay. Um, one of the things that I think uh, we wanted to hear from the participants at the, at the Conversations That Matter session was just even how we define inclusion or what does that even mean? Uh, because I think that, uh, you know, people have varying perspectives on that. So that was kind of interesting just to hear, um, you know, some people thought it just meant in, you know, in an EC classroom that, or any school classroom, I guess, you know, that um, maybe it was some of the more blended or at-risk programs that we know in Illinois we see in some of our school districts uh, where it's not a self-contained special education classroom or, 
you know, other people were talking more about inclusion in the community and so park district programs or just going to museums and libraries and what kinds of opportunities and access are available for, for children with disabilities. So that was just something interesting that I think we're, we're still trying to do some work around and, and figure that out. But um, I would love to hear any thoughts on from anybody on the call. It does look like somebody else just joined us, maybe, or maybe not. Okay. That was just you leaving the chat, Teresa. <laughs> I just saw some things <laughs> on the talk too. Did I leave it? I didn't know I left it. Um, I, so that's what it says. I don't know. I just saw the note. But anyway. Okay. <laughs> okay. Did anybody else hear anything about like inclusion or things about that at conference that it seemed to be talked about or not necessarily? I didn't attend the conference, Ashley. Um, this is Aurora. Mm -hmm. um, but I've been thinking a lot. Uh, I'm I'm working in a daycare with one of my clients right now, and working with her teachers. And um, I've just been thinking a lot about my role in terms of like where I see her for services, and if I'm if I'm working with small groups in the classroom, or like what that looks like if I'm pulling her out for a few minutes and working on a specific strategy, and then pushing in and working with the whole group. Um, but I I like I continue to feel like it's so much about having time for that collaboration because I definitely think we have a role in terms of, of pushing in and delivering services in the natural setting. Um, but it feels like it takes a lot of energy and, and really making that time to reach out and work with the teachers. Um, so I don't know. Personally, I've been thinking a lot about that. I don't know that I have more to say about it than that, but it's been on my mind. Yeah, so that's a great point. I think that's, especially in early intervention, because daycare is, tends to be or, or is becoming more of a common setting that we see kids in that is a natural setting for that child. But then what level of, um, you know, wh where's the daycare at in their understanding of even the EI system or what these therapies are about? And mm -hmm. and, and like you said, the time, I, I find that too. It, it, it can be a challenge to even have the time to chat with the teacher. You know, often the meetings, the ISSP meetings, are with the family, with the parents. And... I've been at meetings where we have invited the daycare teachers to come, and, you know, absolutely that's always an option, but then, you know, if it happens to be in the evening, they may not get paid, or are they able to leave the daycare right. to do a meeting, or then you know, there's always those practical kind of considerations that make it a little tricky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah something we do um, is we, when we go into a daycare, we, we have a daycare contract, so something it's just a uh, kind of like a simple form that has information um, to share with the daycare about who we are as you know the program as fires where I work and the you know what the therapies kind of are um, but then also just even some of that information about if the child is not in daycare who is responsible for calling the therapist you know and so this is a contract between the therapist, the teacher, or, or and or daycare administrator, and then the parents or primary caregivers for the child to kind of help everybody be on the same page. You know, we talk about um, the communication, and so, you know, how is communication going to, to happen? Is the therapist going to leave a note for the parent or email a note or use a communication notebook that is left in the classroom or something like that? 
what level of uh, involvement does the daycare teacher want to be with that communication notebook, those kind of things. So that's been helpful because it kind of sets it up um, from the beginning, having that daycare contract to kind of help everybody be on the same page and know what um, some of that information is and kind of what the expectations are and um, what you know everybody's role is in, in helping to support that child. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I love that idea. Yeah. And it's a, you know, ours, this is something we, we made up at Aspire. You know, this doesn't have to be anything uh-huh. formal or, you know, it, it can be whatever works for you or whatever meaningful information you think you would need or what, or the daycare might have a thought about what to add to that. Um, so is that something that goes to, like, the, like, director of the daycare? Does, like, the teacher see it or know about it? Like, yeah. Who it, is it, it with? Yeah, that's a great question. It can it can depend, and so um, often, like when I when I initiate the daycare contract, and again, this is outside of just like the EI system. This is something we do out of fire. Um, I I like to talk to both of them. Like so, we get you know information from the daycare director as well as the teacher, uh, because you know the teacher I think is going to feel more supported if he or she is supported by the director as well. Um, you know, and, and starting off that way, having everybody involved in that. So it might be, you know, taking a few extra minutes the first session to talk with the daycare director. You know, often when I start with a family, you know, you, you contact the, the parents or primary caregivers first. So I, you know, and if we know we're going to be in the daycare, I'll often try to find out from the the parents of primary caregivers, you know, who should I talk to first at the daycare? Can you, you know, be sure to let them know that we're coming in and that, you know, this is who I am. And um, I usually like to stop in, like, the office or what, or the lobby or wherever, and if the director or, you know, some administrator is there, just have a quick chat with that person about who I am, why I'm coming, you know, is, is there are there any rules of the daycare that I need to know about, you know, do I need to ring the doorbell or do they need a copy of my license? Like those kind of things just sort of building that collaborative relationship from the beginning. Um, but yeah, then the contract, the, the actual paper contract, we would have as much as possible we would want the director and the teacher to be um, mm-hmm. to sign it essentially, yeah, and the family, yeah. Um, yeah. Anybody have other things that you thought about from conference or um, topics that you've been thinking about? No, I'm, I'm curious. If, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, um, not related to conference, but I know we're um, wrapping up the school year and. Um, just wondering if anyone needs support in any way about, you know, trying to to wrap up before summer. This is Aurora again. Um, do you have? I'm not sure. I'm not sure who just spoke, but do you have specific like end of year? I don't know practices or or rituals. I feel like you're sort of alluding to maybe some part of your practice that I'm curious to hear about that if you have something to share. Yeah, so this is Anne. Um, 
Um, I know I'm currently in the schools, but when I was in the schools, um, the, our district's um, OT coordinator actually provided a, um, like, a, a end-of-the-year checklist for all of us therapists, and um, it was pretty daunting, um, all of the things, seeing everything that we needed to do written down, um, mm. but in terms of, like, um, obviously making sure to collect all of the equipment and make sure that either students are transitioning to a new building that is uh, sent to the new building or it's to ESY if students are going to ESY um, or it's just uh, putting this in until the next school year um, and then also taking care of all of the uh, like summer programs that you send home you know, extra practice over the summer, um, wrapping up documentation, all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, we, this is Aurora again. We do ESY at my school, so I, I think I'm in a, a bit of a different situation. Um, but I continue to have an ongoing challenge with the equipment <laughs> issue. Issuing equipment and then having a student leave the school or a student change classrooms and not getting it back. And so that's the sort of ongoing, uh, yeah, challenge that I'm experiencing that I'm trying to figure out how to best manage. Um, but I, yeah, I think it's different at our school, again. We're there for most of the summer. Mm -hmm. How do you manage equipment now? Do you have some kind of inventory list where you keep track of what goes where and with which students? And um, I don't have an inventory list. I think that would probably help the situation. I I try to label all of the equipment in terms of who it's meant to be used for and that it should return to the therapy room if unused or if a student leaves or changes classrooms or it's not being used for some reason. Um, and we have a pretty small school, so then I have like a list of students and what equipment they need, and I sort of go off of that. But I like the idea of inventory. That sounds like a good technique, a good strategy. Do you use do you use something like that? Yep, yep. We had um, all of the equipment was coded. Um, by what type of equipment it was, and that was just more for internal OT use. Um, mm -hmm. The students knew what it meant, um, but you know, all of the different kinds of cushions were one code, and um, and then it was just you know, so say it was like um, A and then zero one, and then the next question was A zero two, A zero three, etc. Numbered uh, accordingly, so that you could keep track of how much you actually have as well. Um, right. But then on the inventory list, you would list, you know, the code, um, and then, you know, what student it was assigned to and which classroom or location it was in. And then you kind of track the student. Mm -hmm. you know, so then if a student moved to another building, it went on to that therapist's front seat and got removed right. from mine. Right. I like that. I might use that in the coming year. Yeah, definitely helpful.
anything else anybody's thinking about? I I went. This is Ashley again. I remember now. I went to a session on goal attainment scaling. Mm. Uh, I don't remember. I I don't like in this moment remember a lot of the details of the session. But I'm just wondering if anybody's using goal attainment scaling or has considered it. Knows about it. <laughs> This is Aurora. I know about it, and I've considered using it, but I haven't tried yet. I'm curious, like, I feel like there's sort of, an, there could be an interesting relationship between goal attainment scaling and, like, I mean, I mostly work in a school, so, like, the benchmarks of the goal seem like that. that's the part I'm not quite sure how to um, navigate yet. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not sure either because I've not seen an example with you know where it's where it's used for IDP goals, so that would mm-hmm. be interesting. you know definitely an examples like in the literature from outpatient clinics or you know in like the sensory integration realm that they're using it more as an outcome measure, and there's been you know some success with that. Um, but that yeah, that's an interesting. I'm not sure how it would work with an IEP goal. Or even in yeah. Where we write, you know, we tend to write somewhat general ISP outcomes that may or may not actually even be measurable, and so, you know, that's something that we should be that we should get better at. But um, I don't, you know, I'm not sure how it would work there either. But so you haven't used an NEI then? Goal attainment. I have training. not used. I know I did go to the training. I know um, the Spiral Foundation offers an online training that you can do. It's it's actually open right now. Um, they offer it every so often, and it's it's available for a month usually. Um, it's with Teresa May Benson, um, and then you just you know it's a self-paced course that you do um, to learn you know exactly how to do goal attainment scaling, learn some of the history. I, I mean, I highly recommend the training if you're interested in goal attainment because you see a lot of variation out in the literature of how it's done, and then once. I went through the training. I was like, "Oh, this is why. Like, you really do need to be trained to really fully understand mm-hmm. how to write the different scales and components of the goal uh, for it to to work the way that it." Um, but it's it's tricky. It's something that I thought about, like in my more of my outpatient practice, but um, and something we've talked about at an organizational level, like that. You know, it might be something someday that we would like to move to as an OT team, um, but getting everybody trained and the funding for that and all, you know, those are always practical considerations. But it's been something we've just kind of been exploring and talking about um, for a couple of years, actually, but um, just thinking about how we write goals and how we measure outcomes, which is, you know, such an important piece of what we do, but is somewhat sometimes the, the tricky part. <laughs> and I feel like it is so dependent on how you write the goal. And I feel like that goal writing in general is something that I struggle with so much. Mm-hmm. And so to have like everything, like everything based around that, then it's like, okay, let me take a lot of data that like I know is supporting this goal and, and to be able to talk about that, but to have it be so specifically linked to, and I, I haven't used it either and I'm kind of, it seems like that's such a great idea, but I'm a little intimidated by the process because mm-hmm. it seems so dependent on how you write the goal um, right. and and that kind of thing. So 
I think the training might be something to look into if they if they kind of walk you through that process of like of how to set up your goals. Mm-hmm. So I guess I wonder if it works best for certain kinds of goals, like if there's if there's a desired outcome that's not able to be measured in another mode, or like if I just I don't know that much about it, so I'm curious if it yeah certain kinds of goals lend themselves to it better or that yeah that's a yeah that's a really good question. I mean I think in my experience of just like trying to write goals using goal attainment scaling. Uh, I feel like there are, uh, yeah, certain activities or occupations or goal areas that that would be easier to scale because you write, you know, your, you know, you write the middle point without getting into too much detail, and then you know, um, two points higher and two points lower, essentially from the zero middle point, and so you have to have something that you can scale, you know, that you, right. that you have those five different points, and so. Um, sometimes the components of the activity change. Sometimes the amount of assistance might change, or the number of trials. So, uh, but it's not like writing benchmarks up to a long-term goal. It's you know because that that's not how goal attainment scaling works. So, um, it it is it's it is interesting to try to to figure it out. I mean that might be an interesting call sometime if if anybody is using it or. Is just interested in kind of you know um, chatting through some strategies or um, what people even read about it because I definitely see it more and you know more and more in the literature and OT literature as an outcome measure. So I think it's it's something to keep our eyes on and um, think about how it might be you know how it might be utilized in our practice settings. Well, and I wonder too, like with. EI, like when we talk about like using a coaching model with EI and talking to the parents about like what would this look like if it was like just a little bit better, like if that's something that might like using something like goal attainment scaling might might help to structure that a little bit better. I, I'm, it's it's an idea because I'm struggling with. With that as well. Like can you can you give an example of that? that work. Um, so I just uh, thinking about like when you're doing uh, coaching in EI, like you're trying to figure out like okay, so here's what like the parent is saying is like my biggest concern. So like the kids like you know having these big huge major tantrums like all the time and like you know certain. Um, times are really, really stressful. And it's like, okay, so one of the questions that, that we would ask is like, well, what would this look like if it was just a little bit better? It's not like what's your like pie in the sky dream goal. It's like what would kind of be this next step of what would this look like if it was a little better? And we're asking the parent that to kind of get an idea of like, okay, so that's the thing that we're working towards then is that little bit better piece. And then when we get there, it's like, okay, well, now he's doing much better with this. What would it look like now if this was a little bit better kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not sure if maybe if it might be possible to like do that together with goal attainment scaling or if, if, if they may actually help each other by doing them in tandem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing we know is writing IFSB outcomes in the eye, uh, there's, there's a lot of variation. And, uh, you know, we, <laughs> we think about that they should be, those outcomes should be functional and participation-based and measurable, and that particularly that measurable component is often not there. And so I wonder, because there is a lot of that uh, measurement and analytics kind of in goal attainment scaling, if, you know, Wanda, as you were talking about kind of even, you, you know, maybe not actually scaling the goals, but just thinking about how to write a more measurable IFSP outcome or what, what components should we be putting in there. And I think we can learn from our school-based colleagues as well because in IEP goals, they have, a, they have to have a lot of measurement in there. And so figuring out how we might be able to pull from some of that as well and put into our IFSP outcomes while still keeping in the, you know, in the best practice of being family-centered and, and, you know, pulling that, that information from the family uh, in terms of their priorities for that outcome. Right, and I wasn't even necessarily thinking of the like the actual like documented IFSP goal. It's kind of like all of the other like kind of mini things to get to that because I agree. Like sometimes those are so broad and vague that you're like, okay, well, that doesn't really tell us anything except for like <laughs> here's like the big, big giant area that you're concerned about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, this is Aurora. I'm pretty new to EI, but I've been, like, I write more specific short-term goals that are connected to that IFSP outcome. I guess I, I, I mean, because I haven't read any outcomes that, that are measurable. I, I guess I thought that that was, that was, I don't know, that that was a, I don't know it's common practice. That's a lot of what you will see in Illinois. Yes. That, you know, that isn't necessarily best practice when you look at the evidence um, and literature that we have and, you know, the DEC principles and even even some of the information that the State of Illinois EI Bureau puts out. You know, we, we, we can do a lot better in writing those outcomes. I think as OTs, we, we have a great background for doing that, we just have to utilize it, you know, and, and you know, and other professionals do um, as well, you know, PT and speech, they learn about goal writing in school, too. We just, you know, we just get in the habit of writing those outcomes the way that we see them written by other people in the state of Illinois, mm -hmm. and, you know, we, we have to be willing to say, like, well, maybe we can add some measurement, you know, to this, so it's not just that, you know, that this child will learn to feed himself with a spoon, but will feed himself with a spoon for the duration of a mealtime or three bites without spilling or like some kind of condition that we're going to be able to say in a year at that yearly, can this child meet the, you know, can they, can this child do this? Do they meet the goal? Because that's, I, I feel like that's, um, we're kind of getting off topic from the AOTA piece, but um, I feel like that's one of the biggest um just disservices to the families is when we meet for those those yearly meetings or six-month meetings, and we have these outcomes that are so general that we can't say that the child met anything. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that can sometimes be disheartening for the family that, oh, we're just going to continue this goal again because we're still working towards that. Or when you see, you know, I see goal, I see outcomes written, you know, the child will improve his sensory processing so that he can play and interact. And it's mm -hmm. sort of like, I mean, I always say, I use that example a lot, and I always say, like, well, I'm still doing that in my life, right? Like, we're, 
this is a lifetime goal to improve your sensory processing so that you can play and interact with others. <laughs> you know, like this is not something we're ever going to be able to say that has actually been met. And so, I think we we can we each have to kind of um, take that opportunity to add some measurement in when we when we are at those meetings and when we have that opportunity to write the outcome. Yeah, because I, th I, I think that, I mean, I actually haven't, like I've been seeing EI kits for a few months, but I actually haven't been to an IFT meeting yet, but <laughs> at least, you know, recently. And, uh, and so I think that they're kind of set up to be these broad, vague things that you can kind of talk around and be like, oh, yeah, yeah they've made progress towards that, but they're kind of, the ones that I've seen have been kind of written almost like deliberately vague so that you could almost say anything to say that, oh, well, they're making progress toward that goal. And I don't, like, that's not really the purpose of them, but it's it's the way that I've seen them be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there are ways to to not change the spirit of that outcome. Or, again, like, we're, we still are family-centered, so you know, NEI, the purpose of those outcomes, it should come from the family. You know, their the language they use when they talk about their priorities or their, their needs for their child and family should be in that outcome. But, you know, there are still ways to kind of um, write it in a way that, that we could say whether or not it's met or make it more, make it as meaningful as possible for that child and family, I guess. Yeah. But it is it is tricky and it's, there's so much variation uh, between states, but even in Illinois, there's so much variation with between CFCs or service coordinators and how they facilitate a meeting or who's on the team and what experiences those therapists have had and, and how they are used to writing IFSP outcomes. All of that can influence how that process goes. But, mm -hmm. um, but maybe that's a good topic that we could um, get into more detail on another call. I, I know it's a little past 8.30, and so we want to um, probably get ready to wrap up since... Um, Want to respect all of your time for and and for joining us um, for the call today. Does anybody have any last thoughts or comments that you wanted to share? Any burning desires about things you need to talk about? Okay. Well, I want to. We want to thank you for joining us for this call. Um, you know, hopefully, we will schedule another call soon. We'll come up with. Um, some ideas for topics or, you know, some of the things that came up on this call or um, anybody on the call tonight or listening in to the recording if you have ideas for future special topic calls or you would like to be, uh, you know, be sort of the facilitator of that call, please let Teresa or I know. This is Ashley speaking. Uh, we would love to have, um, you know, some more of our special topic calls where one of our COP members is going to lead the discussion on a topic and we had had some good good thoughts coming up tonight, and so I think there are things that we could follow up on in future calls. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.